Um, welcome back to another episode of the ATP Performance Podcast. So um, we're, we are joined by Brian Borstein. Am I saying that correctly, Brian? Yep, you okay. nailed it. Yep. Awesome, awesome. And, and you are the owner of Paragon Training, right? I'm a co-founder, co-owner, co-founder. Uh, yeah, as well. And then I'm a full owner of my other training company, Evolved Training Systems. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, so if you're not familiar with Brian, which if you're listening, I'm sure you're definitely uh, familiar with him. And um, if not, uh, again, um, we're, uh, we're happy to have him on the podcast. And today we're going to get into all things hypertrophy, kind of talk maybe a little bit about um, some of the things I've been doing. And I know Brian has as well with, with aerobic uh, training and, and that side of things. And we'll get into, we were just talking before um, about uh, competing. And of course, Connor um, is, is a natural pro. So we want to get into that and, and just delve into kind of all things, like I said, that are, are maybe uh, the, the recent topics of, of, of the world of hypertrophy right now because i know there's a lot going on here so um connor what do you uh what do you want to ask brian now to start out here i know we got a lot to to get into so maybe what do you uh what are you thinking to start start about the conversation man yeah so one thing i was curious with brian is um he's kind of been on the cutting edge of some of the newer type of motions and kind of newer kind of train of thought where we're trying to maybe look into getting the muscle into more of a lengthened position and I'm just kind of curious what's his experience been with that. And like, like my first question around that, Brian, was like, was it a huge mental shift to get around like the kind of classical movements you had been doing before? Um, you know, like, you know, basically you have your movements that are kind of default lengthened, like your your squat patterns and bench patterns. And then you have your, you know, basically all the back work you realized was, you know, all short and dominant, you know, uh, the last, the last, you know, probably 10 years, 15 years. I know you've been training forever. So basically probably just until up a few years ago before, some of this stuff kind of came to light. I'm just curious, was that like a hard transition for you or was it hard to get your head around that, you know, you kind of want to look at these new approaches? Um, What was that experience like for you? Yeah, I think to fully understand and answer this question, we may need to go back like 20 plus years real quick um, and then work forward. So um, my background was that in high school, 1997, I started training. I was 15 years old and At the time, I was given advice by uh, a gentleman named Paul Carter, who you guys probably all know at this point. And uh, his advice to me back in the late 90s was to just focus on big compound movement patterns. It was uh, basically press, bench, squat, and deadlift, and mostly just do those movements until you can hit 200, 300, 400, 500. And that was pretty much his advice. Like, hey, you're small, you're a teenager, go lift heavyweights. Um, we uh, we connected a couple of years ago, and, and I told him I thought that was really great advice, and I appreciated it. And he was like, that was awful advice. I can't believe I ever <laughs> told you that. Like, blah, 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 you know, went on this right. whole big tirade right. about it, uh, which I think was just really <laughs> ironic and, and hilarious. But um, that's where I got my start and it worked really well for me. I, I would say I expanded on those four big movements and I added in, um, some pulling. So the pulling isn't really part of that aside from his deadlift recommendation, but you know, I had a vertical pull and a horizontal pull, but for the most part, it was those, those six big movements. And I did that for a number of years, got stronger, uh, hit college and, Everyone was doing a bro split. That was the thing to do. And if you're going to be drinking 15 beers a night, then it's really easy to go in and just do one muscle group. So, so that worked really well with lifestyle at the time. And then fast forward a number of years, um, in 2009, I started CrossFit Pacific beach and that shifted me out of the 
strength and physique space and more into like a performance sport. And that sport is also dominated by big compound movements, um, Olympic lifting, you know, pull-ups, deadlift, squats, all, all those big things. And so I had very little exposure to the bodybuilding scene during those years. I very much just went headfirst into CrossFit. I competed in it. I began coaching in it. It actually got me into the online coaching space in 2011. So I started that, you know, well before a lot of people did. And um, so to fast forward to your question about how was that transition to some of these more specific movements, um, it was a very easy transition for me because I was extremely burnt out on doing big compound movements that were extremely fatiguing. Um, through years of CrossFit, I had shoulder and knee things that were, you know, a constant nuisance. I had a series of, of elbow injuries, both uh, golfers and tennis elbow on the inside and on the outside. Um, and I had to work through all these things in CrossFit. And so when I came out of CrossFit, I already knew that I had to check my ego and it wasn't about how much weight I could lift anymore, but it was about how well I could lift the weight. And so from that point, um, like I left CrossFit in 2016, 2017, and then I found, uh, first it was RP and those guys. And so I did some kind of Mike Isratelian type stuff for a year or two. And then that, uh, moved me over to kind of the 3DMJ guys and Brian Miner. And that was maybe 2018 ish. Um, in late 2019 or early 2020, I actually started coaching or training under Brian Miner. He was my coach for about half a year. And it was right around that time that I also had discovered Cass and N1. And so I don't think I was the best client to Brian because, um, <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was very, you know, interested in all of this, this N1 stuff. And Brian was still on the spectrum of like, you know, the six big movement patterns, horizontal push, horizontal pull, vertical pull, vertical push, et cetera, et cetera. And so the training was more based around that stuff. He was open to like, I was like, Hey, I want to try this, like, you know, iliac lat pull down thing. And he was like, sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll put it in the program, you know, but like, he wasn't coaching me on technique for it or anything like that. Um, so a lot of it was self-discovery for me, but, uh, I still have videos of, of myself, you know, the first iterations of trying to perform this iliac lat pull down and, and what it looked like. Uh, and I have a post on my page from, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago where I'm like the evolution of the iliac lat pull down. And I have a, a video of me doing it from like 2019 and then 2020. And then, you know, what it looked like in 2021 or 22, kind of what it looks like now. Um, and so, yeah, I was just really all in from the beginning on that stuff. I, I didn't want my joints to hurt anymore. And my understanding of these like biomechanically advantageous movements was that it would allow you to train in a manner that would be conducive to longevity. And uh, I, that was what I was in for at the time. That's so interesting that you were being coached by Brian Miner. Did you say 2018 it was? No, I think it was later. I think it was like late 19 or early 2020. Okay. I was actually coached by him for a good, maybe eight, nine months in 2018 too. So I know, I know what that experience was like. Um, it's kind of cool to see. I know he kind of spent some time in-house, I think with Kasim. I, I, I saw him on the, uh, the bicep video with, uh, with Berto that, so it's kind of cool to see him kind of investigating those ideas as well, too. Another thing that, that came to my mind too, is did you find 
you know, as you kind of got into these motions and you maybe exposed some of your clients to them, did you get like any pushback from them about kind of like, what's this all about or what's the benefit of it? Not really, because most of the clients that I was getting were coming to me because they thought that the stuff I was doing was cool and unique. Um, so like when you talk about like my current client base, it's kind of hard to disseminate that out and answer your question because a lot of my one-on-one -on -one clients at that time were still half in CrossFit. So sure. I was kind of like maneuvering them into like this little bit more of a hypertrophy space, a little bit more of focusing on the longevity of training and stuff like that. And they were still like, well, I have this, this workout that I have to be really good at for CrossFit, or like, I want to be able to snatch this amount of weight. And so some of them, you know, they had a little bit of pushback, but that was much more about just equipment accessibility. Um, like the CrossFit sure. people were training in in literally a free weight gym. And so uh, it wasn't like I was going to try and make them do like banded versions of these or anything, you know? Right, right. In terms of two of kind of like the orthopedic implications of just only training with movements that are kind of the big basics or whatever versus kind of the more maybe single joint or maybe kind of thinking more of, you know, the line of pull on each muscle and how you're aligning things. Uh, I think that's a pretty commonly purported thing with a lot of people. Like I actually was just listening to, it just came out today. There was a 3DMJ podcast on training at longer muscle lengths. And that was kind of Berto's number one thing he said. He's like, well, I'm feeling less pain overall. And, you know, some of these motions too, you know, um, they kind of bring back some of the gains I had when I was say like doing, for example, like a barbell row kind of cheater style. But now I'm doing it in the kind of this much more kind of efficient way that doesn't, you know, totally <laughs> destroy my, my knees and my, you know, spinal erectors and stuff each week. Right. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a fairly common thing that a lot of people are kind of coming on board to. And, you know, you asked me to do a straight barbell curl. Like I'm not doing it, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And I don't have any really bad joint problems and I don't have quite the training years that you do, but you know, once I, I know for me personally, when I was kind of uh, exposed to these kind of like maybe slightly, let's just call them more efficient training, training tools. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm all into, it wasn't hard to sell myself either. Um, but I, I certainly, I found a little bit of a challenge maybe to communicate it, or maybe it's just to kind of find the right words and not maybe like demonize, you know, the movements that, you know, a lot of people have been exposed to when they first come into the gym versus, you know, kind of just telling them the benefits of, you know, some of this stuff and how it, you know, how it may be kind of worth trying rather than trying yeah. to be like, oh, this old stuff, you know, the upper back pull down zero lats, you know, type thing. That's kind of the meme right now. Right. right. But, right. but yeah, that's been, that's been something I've been trying to wrap my head around, just kind of find the right things to say to people to kind of get them to, you know, maybe just be a bit more open-minded to it. Right. I yeah. use a uh, stimulus and fatigue a lot when it comes to that, uh, you know, extending it three joints in a movement doesn't really allow you to send the stimulus where you want it to be. And, you know, extending it one joint or, two joints in the case of like a pull down or something like that. Um, a much more efficient way to send the stimulus where you want it to go. Sure. Sure. And on the topic, on the topic of pull downs too, I, we were kind of in Cass's comment section the other day and I felt like we maybe had a bit of an, a similar experience where when we got on to doing those more iliac focused movements, it was almost like, or at least for me, it was kind of like, um, well, like Cass likes to talk a lot about like thresholds, right? And he's like, like for me, the other, the other lat trading I was doing clearly wasn't crossing the threshold of being a good movement for that part of the lats. Right. And for me, it was kind of coming to this out of a point of necessity where 
I had won my pro card in the WNBF and actually the head judge I talked to like right after the show, he touched right at the bottom of my lats. And he's like, you need more size there. Like everything else is, is pretty developed, but like, you're missing that. He didn't say iliac lats or nothing. He just right, right. literally palpated down there. He's like, you need a little <laughs> bit more of this. Right. So I was like, damn, like I thought I had that system down. Right. But then you get on stage and you, you see where you, you see someone in an experienced style like that has been judging physiques for like 30 plus years. You kind of got to, you know, listen to them and try and find new ways. Right. So yeah. the, the, the N1 stuff for me was very hard to actually digest at first. Cause I was like, well, this is going against what I believe to be optimal. Right. And at first I was a little butthurt about it, but then I started <laughs> to get the buy-in as I started to, to do it more. And then it was, it, it all of a sudden, you know, I kind of, in a relatively quick span of maybe like eight months, you know, my back that, that kind of, uh, you know, the lower lat sweeping down the iliac portion really did just all of a sudden get, you know, a lot more dense. And I looked a lot, you know, quote unquote wider because of that. Like, I'm curious, was your experience, you know, kind of similar in that sense too, where you felt like it kind of worked pretty fast? Yeah. It's, it's tough to say because I don't get as lean as you and I don't have like a judge or somebody with such an acute eye to assess my physique. Um, so I do my like annual photo shoot most years. I'm not doing it this year, but I'll usually diet throughout the spring. And then I'll do a photo shoot sometime in the summer when I'm as lean as I'm going to get. And I have progressions of my back across from 2020 to 21 to 22. And there's for sure significant development across the entire back musculature. And it's not even necessarily specific to just that iliac lat region, but you can see like the teres and all the different muscles in the rhomboid area. And you can see for sure, like some, uh, some lumbar lat and, and maybe some, some iliac as well, but, but the whole thing just looks more developed, uh, rear delts as well. And so, um, I, I, I don't know exactly to be sure, but, uh, but I, I would, I would presume that, that it was pretty quick. And I mean, the, the loads increasing and then improving the technique and improving the mind muscle connection, and then actually finishing a session and touching an area and being like, Oh, that's what that feels like, you know, versus all of the tension being in the upper back area. Most of the time. Um, Absolutely. one thing I just wanted to say maybe, uh, and actually what you were saying before Connor, um, somebody I recently that I love and respect, they posted a, a video of uh, branch born training. Right. And so for your point, and I like, they were like something like, you know, uh, the passion's not there. Like it used to be, you know, or something. And I'm like, you know, I see your message here, but you have to realize that maybe there's a middle ground of being able to train really intently and, and with that same mindset you're talking about, but without the surgeries involved that some of those guys, I can't remember who else was in the video, but I'm like, look up their injury history. And I'm like, and I'm sorry, yeah. you know, you can say what you want. Like, Oh, that's part of the, you know, like it's like, Oh yeah, have a surgery, do go through rehab, you know? You clearly don't maybe know someone who's been through that, you know, especially for something, if you're not going to get, you know, make a, just living off of it. And even then it's like, you know, why there's a, there's this idea, obviously that Cass is trying to combat that these biomechanically specific movements somehow come along with lower effort levels. Yeah. And the three of us obviously understand that, that that's not the case and that you can work just as hard on an iliac lat pull down as you can on like a bent over barbell row with momentum. Um, the difference just being that at the end of that set of that barbell row with momentum, uh, maybe your back is fried, but then also your glutes and your hamstrings and your quads and your spinal and erectors. Overall. And like, it's just, just yeah, your, your whole system, yeah. right? I think so, it probably relates to CrossFit in that way, right? Where people just yeah, love sure. feeling thrashed, you know what yeah. I mean? So, so I, um, I actually love 
that now when I train, the systemic fatigue is so low. Uh, that was one of the things I always hated about CrossFit was you would finish a workout and then you would spend the next 30 minutes just trying to recover from that workout. So the way that I live my life now, you know, I work out between 8.30 and 10 in the morning. And then as soon as I finish my workout, five minutes later, I'm upstairs, you know, in my office doing work on the computer. And that would have been just absolutely impossible in CrossFit. And also something that I struggled with um, a year and a half ago, I tried to do a strength cycle, if you want to call it that. But I went back to doing deadlifts and low bar back squats and, and all these different things. And it was the same thing. I would finish a session and I'd be like, whoo, I need a minute, you know? Um, and so, so it was, it was hard to recover from. I lost motivation very quickly within three weeks. I was like, fuck this strength cycle. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and so it's just not like a, a style of training conducive to my goals or, you know, the future 20 years of my lifting. And maybe um, I, I, if you want to give some examples, I know Connor's question was relating to the lengthened exercises and specific techniques. Maybe you want to give some examples of like, how are you implementing that? And maybe mm -hmm. just for someone who doesn't know what that means, even just yeah. to kind of explain that briefly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I guess the simplest way to talk about muscle length is probably to use a movement like a bicep curl, because that's intuitive for people. So, you know, when your arm is extended at the bottom of a bicep curl, your bicep is stretched. And then when you contract up and your bicep shortens um, at the contracted position, that would be considered the short position. Um, the bicep curl is probably not the best example for me to use when we talk about like length and partials and stuff, because uh, with that same idea of lengthening and shortening, uh, maybe a better example would be something like a, uh, a cable row, where the length in position would be when your arms are fully extended, uh, stretching the regions of the back, and then the short position would be as the hands approach your torso, and there's the contraction in the musculature of the back. And so... Um, you know, this can apply to any movement that is overloaded short. You can think about uh, leg extensions, many leg curl machines, uh, any really back movement. Connor said that, you know, he mentioned the back as being the best example of this. And, and it really is because every single other muscle group has movements where we can set up in a manner to overload the length and position or overload where the muscle is stretched. But in the back, you can't really do that. Like even when you do something like a like a pull around, which in effect trains the the muscle at a longer muscle length, it doesn't it's limited by the shortened. Yeah, it's still limited by the short position exactly. Um, and so these techniques that I've been using are really just a matter of trying to bias more of the time spent in the length and position. Um, and the simplest example of this would just be that if you're doing a set of cable rows and a full range of motion rep is deemed as, you know, your hands touch your torso and that's the end of the rep or whatever, then you would simply just continue performing reps after you can no longer touch your hands to your torso. And, uh, what, what most people find is that depending on the load you used, you might be able to get 10 or 12 additional reps after you can no longer complete a full rep, which is just crazy. Like you could do a set of eight full reps and then it would take you 12 more reps maybe to get from full range of motion to, to the point where there's no range of motion. Um, and that just goes to show um, how short that movement is because it's not just the strength curve that's short. Like it's not just that your body is 
is poor, like you're mechanically disadvantaged at that position, but it's like the movement itself is harder at that position too. So it's like a double whammy, right? You're getting short position from both angles. Um, and so, yeah, back movements are the primary place that I've been using those. And uh, it goes, the way I use them goes beyond just, you know, extending a set with partials. Um, I have a kind of progression plan that I use with them and stuff like that. So we can dig into that if you guys want. I was going to say, if that was kind of going to be my next question, actually, are, are, you know, how are you implementing that mainly? And maybe even like, what would you, you know, cause I know a lot of times we might do a little different training for ourselves. What would you maybe recommend for someone if they're like, you know, what is all this about? You know, how, how can I throw this in? Um, maybe something like that if, if you, if you want. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I actually use it with most of my clients, mostly because I work with primarily advanced clients at this point. Um, but the way that I, I, my, my progression method in, in a bottle basically is that I separate the movements into three boxes. We have our, our highly demanding lengthened compound movements. So you can call those your like RDLs, your squat pattern movements, your split squats, um, chest presses, things like that. Highly demanding compound movements that are lengthened, overloaded. These movements are in one box and they basically start further from failure. And then week to week, I move a little bit closer to failure. And eventually, depending on the movement, maybe they'll hit failure. Maybe we'll be like a rep shy of failure or something like that. Um, then we have a bucket of movements that I don't have like a great name for, but I, uh, the, they're either like, they're, they're primarily lengthened isolation movements. So you could think of something like, uh, an overhead tricep extension, uh, a face away curl, um, a behind the back lat, uh, cable lateral raise, something like that, that is, is overloaded at the length and position most of the time, depending on how you set up your cables. Um, and so those movements progress faster than the uh the lengthened compounds do and then once so they might start at something like two to three reps from failure and then by week three we're butting up against failure with those movements and then i'll go into intensity techniques uh to further bias that that lengthened portion of the movement so uh, one of my new ones that i really like on those types of movements are uh after failing a rep doing an extremely slow negative, like uh, seven to 10 seconds, if you can manage it, and then holding the bottom isometric, uh, pushing against the tension, but basically holding that and letting the the load stretch your musculature out. Um, so I've been doing that and then holding that as long as I can until I just literally can't hold it anymore. And in most cases, after doing a slow negative, it's five to eight seconds, and then I literally just can't hold it anymore. So um that's kind of a progression I'll take with those like middle ground movements. And then when you get to the third bucket of movements, which are generally short overloaded isolation movements and back movements. So they all fall into that third bucket category. And the way that I progress those are they'll generally start at about one to two reps from failure, which means that by week two or week three at the latest, they're going to be butting up against failure. And then from there, I'll usually have one week where I do uh, partials. So I'll do, like I said, where I'm doing my row, I fail the full range of motion, but then I continue doing partials after failure. Um, and then that, the following week, will become a lengthened set, as I call it. Um, people have kind of different terminology for this, but my version of a lengthened set 
is basically that you do uh, one full range of motion set to set a baseline. And because we know full range of motion training is probably really good. Um, so I still like to get one full range of motion set in. And then I'll add 20 or 25% weight to whatever that first set was. So assume that I'm doing a cable row with 100 pounds. I hit 10 reps. I fail. The next set would be with 120 or 125 pounds. And I will match the amount of reps that I achieved on the first set. So I achieved 10 reps on the first set. I'll do 10 reps with 125. Uh, but obviously, I'm not going to be able to do 10 full range of motion reps. Uh, what usually happens is I end up getting about three full range of motion reps. And then I'll finish that with seven partial reps. Um, and then week to week after that, I'll usually just progress those loads or progress the reps of both the full range of motion set or the uh, the length and set with the number of partials that I do. And then um, on some movements, I've been experimenting with just setting a new range of motion. And that seems to be kind of all the rage right now amongst, I call them the evidence-based admirals. But um, the, the the people that talk about this stuff, like Milo Wolf and Eric Helms and, and Mike Isretel, they, uh, they tend to want to standardize everything, which... Like, I understand why why people want to do that. Um, but I think as long as there's a progression model in place that allows you to see progression week to week, that you don't necessarily have to standardize range of motion. So um, an example of what they might do would be like on that cable row, instead of doing my 125-pound set where I only get three full range of motion reps and then a bunch of partials, they would just say, well, we're going to use 125 pounds, but we're only going to do 60% of the range of motion. So they'll establish whatever is 60%, and then they'll use their typical RIR, uh, reps and reserve, and, and basically just use that as their new full range of motion. They just kind of establish a new stop point for the rep. Um, but I think that that's limited in a few ways, um, primarily that it doesn't allow you to ever target the uh the more stretched ranges of the motion if you're just always doing 60 percent range of motion and calling that full range of motion and never letting that range of motion fall off then you're really missing out on 50 percent 40 percent 30 percent 20 percent 10 percent and lengthened isometrics and so with my my method i really like to make sure i'm hitting all of those different ranges of motion along the way i think it's um super cool that we're seeing this being a little bit investigated um, somewhat by science because I remember like way back in maybe 2008, you know, I read an article on T Nation with John Meadows and he was big on doing partials in the lying lag curl. So there's a short overload movement that kind of fits your criteria, right? And as well to uh, dumbbell lateral raises, uh, really high reps, not getting into as big of a stretch, but kind of just doing the first kind of maybe third range of motion with heavy weights for high reps, right? And so I, I'd personally been experimenting with some of this stuff for a long time because I got on kind of John stuff and would apply it to stuff that he would, you know, kind of give his stamp of approval to. So like it was, it was, it was similar with some of this back stuff. I was like, you know, okay, that it, the principle makes sense. You know, once I kind of started to think more about resistance profiles and like why that might be beneficial, um, and I tried your, like I said, I tried your lengthened um, set the other day and it was, it was, it was, it was quite good. Um, and I kind of, I think I'm approaching things with the same mindset as you is I'm generally, you know, doing more movements into the short, like those back, like let's say a back motion where it's limited by the short, I'll maybe hit 
a set of failure and let that fail in the short. And then as I'm going to keep progressing sets, if I have more volume to do after that, you know, maybe I am getting into more of the length and partials, or maybe I'm just going to do a set after that, where I'm going to let the range of motion kind of drop off. Right. Which is kind of essentially what you were doing. Right. And so it's always kind of like taxing that short position first, getting what you can out of that, realizing you have a little bit less than that length and, and then getting that, getting that juice and then moving on. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, super cool to hear how you have that all kind of dichotomized. Right. Awesome. Yeah, dude. I love that you, uh, that you tried it and enjoyed it. That's cool. <laughs> um, but one question I had and it speaks to kind of your first initial conversation about your, you know, training history. Do you think if you, and obviously you'd have to have specific goals of mainly focusing on hypertrophy, but do you think, you know, for someone who's maybe watching this who's a beginner and really getting into training, do you think uh, you'd have similar advice for someone who's a beginner and really trying to focus on hypertrophy to still focus on compound movements? And also a kind of a similar question along that same line. Do you think your physique would be, you know, it's obviously impossible to quantify, but what do you, you know, think if you had to really make a determination, do you think your physique would have made a lot more progress quicker um, from a hypertrophy specific standpoint, if you use these movements and, you know, these techniques back in, you know, the nineties when, when you were getting into training? Yeah, probably not. I mean, my advice to beginners still is to, to focus mostly on kind of some of the, the big movers. I'm not, um, as gung ho about saying you need to deadlift and you need to squat and you need to bench press per se. But I do think that you want like a compound leg pressing movement as, as a priority. You want a hip hinge movement as a priority. Um, it could be even a 45 degree hip extension. Like it doesn't even have to be an RDL per se. Um, some sort of, of chest pressing, some sort of overhead pressing, uh, vertical pull, vertical or horizontal pull. Um, I think those those are just really good basic movement patterns to get under your belt. And uh, once you learn to kind of harness those movements and get the most out of them, it's a much easier transition to the more biomechanically advantageous movements. Um, so I, I, yeah, it's 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 like a sliding doors thing. I don't I can't really look back and say how things would have been had they gone that way. Um, but one thing that I do think is interesting, and, and I don't think there's actually science to support this, but um, when I was young, I didn't squat much. I didn't do a lot of legs. I would say I skipped them like every third week. And um, I really thought that weighted pull-ups were like the coolest thing in the world. Like all my friends wanted to be like big barbell benchers, and I just wanted to be really good at weighted pull-ups. And so to this day... I'm a poor bench presser and I'm a really good pull upper and my back is significantly more developed than any of the other regions of my body. And so I don't know how much of that relates back to those days, or maybe I just veered away from doing barbell bench press because I just wasn't good at it. Um, and so maybe that's an issue too. It's, it's obviously really hard cool. to look yeah. back and say anything confidently. Yeah. I want to jump jump in on this real quick, um, just to off Joe's question and off Brian's response about the beginners doing the more, let's just say, optimal motions. It's been really interesting for me to kind of observe some people in my gym, um, because usually I, um, I'm there early in the morning, so when I'm training, uh, it's not as busy and it's more of the older crowd kind of getting in before work, but occasionally I'm there like when it's, you know, the busiest time, 5 p.m., and I see you know, these kind of high school kids, or I'm assuming they're high school, maybe they're junior high, I don't even know. But 
it's interesting to see some of this optimal stuff bleeding down because I can tell it's bleeding down into them, you know, kind of the TikTok crowd or whatever. And I'm I'm watching a lot of them doing like single arm cross body tricep extensions. And they're really not like even strong enough to really stabilize the cable, even at its like smallest setting. So I, I that was kind of a moment for like me. It's like, huh, okay. So I like all these new motions. I'm using all of them, but seeing someone with that low amount of muscle mass and coordination, to me, it just didn't look right. I was just like, gosh, these guys could get so much more bang for their buck if they actually did just do a little bit more basic classical stuff. And then once they got a little bit of strength and muscle mass, maybe slowly bleed that stuff in. Would, that was just my impression would, of seeing a few would, kids though. No, Connor, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was literally going to ask, do you think, and I, I've seen people, I don't like the way some people phrase it, but there's like a barrier to entry to these movements in a mm. way. But I think, mm. do you, would you maybe say exactly kind of what Connor's alluding to where it's like, there's a certain level that it's again, I don't want to make it sound like there's a barrier to entry to these movements. Like you're gatekeeping these movements, but do you think they're more geared towards an advanced trainee where they're going to get more out of it? I think that's obvious, but yeah. do you think a beginner like, who's just like, yeah, I really want to do these iliac pull-downs or press arounds. Is there merit there? Like, I guess it maybe depends obviously, but what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I just think when you're first starting out with training, like, I know there are people that are like, you know, I want the best results possible. And if I need to spend two hours, six days a week, like that's what I'll do, you know, but I would never have a client. And and even if they came to me and they were like, I want to do press arounds and cross body pushdowns and one arm cable laterals. And, and I'm brand new to the gym. Right. Um, I, I, I wouldn't tell them to do that because they like, when you're talking about that one arm cross body pushdown, what I kept just thinking was we need to do dips. Like you need to just train your triceps, do dips, get really strong at dips. When you're dipping with 90 pounds around your waist for a set of 10 or six or whatever it is, like now you're strong enough that you can get something out of that. And you've built a connection with your triceps. It's like, we often forget that when you first step in the gym, you're like Gumby, you don't have any mind muscle connection. So if you're trying to watch somebody take that tricep thing and, and do it, it might actually look more like a wood chopping motion where they're using their rear delt and their lats. And like, it's that sort of thing versus isolating elbow extension, which is what we want to be doing. That's like me with yeah, lat pull downs. And, and it's funny you talk about back because that's probably the opposite for me. And there was a point and it's funny. And now that this is, I've learned, especially the pull around, there was a time and it was it speaks to Connor's uh, the judge pointing at those lats. There was a time where I, and I actually have a photo too, where I'm doing this just God awful lap, uh, lat spread, right? It just looks terrible. Like, you know, I'm not flex, like I'm like squeezing. It just looks bad. And then I have a progression where I like finally learned the connection and I wasn't doing a pull around necessarily, but in my, some of my cable rows, I, I started to like do this like twisting motion and it, it kind of was, what I now know as like me being able to actually connect into that lower, but obviously I wasn't turning my body, you know, yeah. to get the full stretch, but it was like when I slowly started to, you know, realize like you're saying, it's literally like your brain explodes when you have a session, like, you know, you get done and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I wasn't just ripping my biceps on, you know, my lat pull downs or, you know, my rows, it's actually my back working and not even my upper back either. So, right. That's um, cool. Yeah. That's a cool moment. Exactly. Well, what you were what you were saying, Joe, too, about having the the like, let's say, teenager new person to the gym learn an iliac pull down. Like, I think my solution to that would just be like, let's just learn like a neutral grip pull down, mm -hmm. like that kind of just like gets you close enough to that arm path, and that's 
that's like I said, thresholds. That's probably going to cross the threshold for them to start getting some development in their lats, and it's going to set them up to maybe do the more optimal motions later, right? Yeah. No, for sure. And 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 so yeah, I, I was gonna, I was going to talk about. I know we we're uh, kind of going into the kind of the more um, uh, I guess specific movements and lengthen side of things, but I know today. Uh, you just had a DEXA scan done as well. Do we want to? Do we want to get into? I know I've actually, and you probably have never seen it, but we've actually spoken about uh, what you were doing on the podcast before. I can't remember what it was about. Um, I think we were maybe talking about. Uh, I think it's Dave. Is it McConey? McConey. Yeah. I was Coney, say, yeah. Didn't he do something similar with his calves? I think we were talking yeah. about that on one podcast. It was a while back, but um, but yeah. So you've just completed. Uh, maybe uh, let you I'll let you talk about it. Get into it if you want to. A little yeah. bit on what you've been going through for the last last six months, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So cool. Yeah, I'd love to talk about it. So uh in August, I had a uh a DEXA scan and um then in October, so about six weeks later, I decided to embark on this uh one arm training experiment because I figured I'm 25 years into training. Am I even getting any more gains at this point? Uh am I even benefited by training arms? Cause like there've been many periods in my life where I haven't trained arms. Um, like my first couple of years after I got that advice from Paul Carter, I did only compounds. I didn't train arms at all. And then I trained them a lot when I was doing a bro split. And then I went to CrossFit and I didn't train arms for seven years or something like that. And then I came out of CrossFit and started training them again. And all the time, like in CrossFit, I never felt like my arms got smaller or I lost anything. And I was just doing a whole ton of, you know, pull-ups and dips and all these compound movements. So I designed this experiment where I was going to continue training my right arm only with upper body compounds. So that would be like my pull-downs, my rows, my chest presses, and my shoulder presses. And any direct elbow flexion or elbow extension would occur only on my left arm. Uh, and so I went, I went through this and I just had my DEXA today. It's been six months since October to now early April. And I don't even know what to think, man. I haven't even had time to digest the results because what came back was that every single part of my body grew a minuscule amount. Um, it says I gained 0.8 pounds of lean body mass in six months. So that's, nice. you know, distributed across your body. That's, you know, 0.2 here, 0.3 there, like, like whatever it is, it's, it's minuscule amounts that you can't even detect. But for some random reason, my left arm, the one I've been specializing on shrunk by a third of a pound. And so I, I like, I, 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 I'm, I'm like almost speechless because like the, the most obvious answer is that it's a measurement error on, on the DEXA, but like, what are the chances that it's the one arm I've been training exclusively for six months that has this measurement error on? And so, um, at, I, I don't know what to take from that. I'm going to continue to like, I'm going to, I plan on doing measurements as well. And then also doing strength testing to to see whether my right arm is as strong as my left arm or if my left arm is as strong as my right. Uh, before doing the experiment, I was always one rep stronger on my right arm. So anytime I would do a curl set or a tricep extension set, I would kind of have to subtly cheat the last rep on my left arm 
Uh, whereas my right arm would just, you know, be doing the thing and, and as you would expect perfect form or whatever. Um, so I still have some kind of information to gather on it, but it definitely threw me for a loop and I literally got these results two hours ago. So I've just yeah. kind of been ruminating on it since then. Yeah. I was going to say, sorry to, uh, sorry to make uh, you go into that right away. Uh, I know I was going to say, I don't know if you even got the results back or not, but yeah. no, go ahead, Gunner. I was, I was going to say Mike Menser's ghost is going to, you know, revive, revive from the ground and say, this is proof you overtrained. Right, right, right. So my right arm grew, right? My right yeah. arm grew a third of a pound and my yeah. left arm shrank a third of a pound. And so like, yeah. I kind of wish that, like, I, I wish I could just go do another DEXA tomorrow and see say, if like the yeah. same measurement error happens, yeah. but I'm not going to go spend another $250. But um, yeah, I don't know what to think about it, to be honest. Like my, my inclination, my hypothesis going into the experiment was that my right arm wouldn't grow nor shrink and that my left arm wouldn't grow nor shrink. Um, but instead, according to the DEXA, my right arm grew and my left arm shrank. And so um, I, I really just, I'm still working through kind of my thoughts on that. Yeah, it's like the hypertrophy guys just fucking with you, really. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. like, like you said, it's like, of course, you know, you think like, oh, variability, you know, of course. But then you're like, well, what are the freaking chances? You know, like, right. how could this right. possibly be? But, um, but no, for sure. But that'll be interesting too. And I was actually going to ask, how does that, and it, obviously you're still training it, so there's getting blood flow, but does that arm feel any different? No, I mean, the, honestly, the only things I really felt from doing this experiment were that my left arm felt like it increased coordination, maybe like a little bit, because that's my off arm. Um, <laughs> and then I also experienced some like really unfortunate kind of upper scapula tightness on my left side. Um, and that's just because I'm banging like, you know, what was it? I was doing between seven and 10 sets of biceps a week and seven to 10 sets of triceps a week on just my left arm. And so there's a ton of like scapular stability and stuff like that that goes into any of those movements, even though they're isolated elbow movements. Um, and so I've had yeah, I've been seeing a PT because it's just like really tight all through my like teres and lumbar lat region on my left side now. And it's, is it almost I like wouldn't someone, say it's getting worse, but it's like, I notice it all the time. Is it almost like someone doing like bow and arrow? Like, like with like, if you shoot, like, cause you're only doing that one side, like, is it kind of like, do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, maybe. They get like almost like an overuse and a lot of times they'll have one. Cause I mean, if yeah. you pull in a compound bow, that's like 60, 70, 80 pounds. Sometimes you're pulling back. So then they have problems because a lot of them, you know, they're not like lifting. Um, I've, I've just dealt with that before with some of my a client of mine, actually. Um, but yeah, it was weird because he was like, we would do like different like exercises and he would be like significantly stronger, like especially like rows, like where it was like yeah. weird where I'm with, you know, we're like, oh, something's going on here. And then we yeah. figured that out. But no, that makes sense, though, especially because the other side's kind of just not getting that same yeah ability well you know i'm not stronger on the left side like even now when i do my my one arm rows and, and my one arm pull downs uh my left arm still struggles it's still a rep behind so um at least as it comes to compound work and you know movements that are going to utilize the musculature of the back uh it doesn't seem like my left side has improved in strength compared to my right interesting Interesting. Are you excited to, uh, to when, when's the inaugural uh, arm session back? Well, I, I, uh, I, I have to do the strength testing okay. from side to side. And so that's going to be, I guess, the first thing that I do from, from on my right arm. Uh, what are you going to do for but, that? Yeah. I'm curious. 
I'm going to do all the movements that I've been doing with my left arm so oh. that I can eliminate as many variables oh. as possible. So I have a, a one-arm crossbody extension. I have a one-arm overhead extension. I have a one-arm face-away curl, and I have a one-arm cable preacher curl. So those are my four movements, and I'm going to strength test those, basically go to failure on my left arm, go to failure on my right arm, and see what it ends up being. Gotcha. No, that makes that makes complete sense. Yeah, Connor, uh, I was going to say, do you have anything to ask him about the, the arm experiment? I know that might be something I, I just, you're interested I, in. I kept thinking about, um, I watched Dave McConey's channel a lot, and I kept thinking about a comment that someone, one of his subscribers made. He's like, oh, you're just coming to the same conclusion you always do where, you know, nothing, no, no changing, no training variables matter. And, you know, there's no, no point of like trying anything because nothing works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a very nihilistic attitude. And yeah. um, I think there just comes a point in your training career as a natural athlete where it's really easy to fall into nihilism. And, and I find myself, you know, very much in that space right now too, especially like, like Dave McConey and, and me and uh, Abel Chabai the other guy that's always on with Dave, we have a WhatsApp group and we're just always like texting back and forth, sending voice notes and videos and stuff. And I think uh, Dave has made me a bit more nihilistic as well. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I just, I, I don't know, man, I I've, I'm 40 years old. I've been training 25 years. Like, I think that's part of why I've become so passionate in the last few months about this new pursuit of cardio that we like briefly touched on off air before recording, because it's like something new for me to focus on where I can see progression. Um, not that I'm not getting stronger in my lifts still, which, which I am, but like, it doesn't seem to be turning into muscle mass. Like when, when we looked at my DEXA and it says that I gained 0.8 pounds of muscle in six months, I mean, that came with an increase in body fat from 14.7 to 16.1. So I gained 1.4% of body fat and 0.8 pounds of lean muscle mass. Like my guess is that that's probably mostly glycogen. And if I were to lose that body fat, it would probably be the exact same as it was six months ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often, sorry, I often, I'm, I'm wondering when that moment's going to be for me too, because I'm. 33 years old, I have 15 years of lifting. And I, I keep thinking like, am I about to brush up against this experience? So I find it cool to listen to you guys so I can kind of like maybe get myself mentally prepared for what my headspace is going to be like. Because because I, I know I'm not too far from that, but I've been still been able to see significant improvements from contest season to contest season. Taking long, long breaks between shows uh, since 2012. It's been 10 years, but I know I'm like brushing up against that. I just like, oh, when's that line going to be for me? You know what I'm saying? Connor, Connor, I have a question for you. And it actually yeah. speaks to what we were talking about and kind of segues into all this, especially with Brian competing. And because um, before we got on the podcast, I was asking Brian, because I've uh, never competed. I've talked about it before, um, even though I've really like, like, uh, but it'll be about eight years for me really training seriously. Um, like out of high school and you know before then it was like athletics and you know haphazard high school training essentially um, but yeah it, it's interesting because um, I, I was thinking just kind of what you're talking about Connor do you find the passion and kind of like what um, Brian is talking about with with cardio and his new pursuit do you find like the actual passion like from getting on stage itself and like the actual you know like the experience of that or do you truly find more passion out of like what you were describing of seeing that little progression? Cause I've heard you talk about it before Connor, where you're like, I almost kind of like 
seeing the progression when I've taken, you know, this, you know, uh, some photos or videos in the gym after a session, you know, but what is that like, you know, live for you? Cause, cause that's why I've never competed. It's just that like thought is like not as enjoyable as just the progression of training and it's nothing. And I've always talked about, it's like, I always hate talking about that. Cause it makes it sound like I'm like hating on people who compete. It's like, no, 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 it's just not, you know, it doesn't fire me up. Like just going back to train again. Um, or even like Brian saying, just get lean and just, you know, do a shoot or whatever. But what do you, what are your thoughts on that, Connor? Yeah, well, that's why I'm kind of concerned when I <laughs> listen, listen to guys like Brian and like Dave McConey and, and whatnot, because I think that positive reinforcement of seeing my efforts, you know, um, be visually present is probably pretty important. And that as, as like that versus the getting on stage, I definitely thrive more in the seeing the progression and just knowing that I did it versus getting on stage, which I actually find a little bit stressful, to be honest, like it is, it's nice, it's a rush, it's, um, you know, it's, it's adrenaline, but I find the lead up to be almost like, it's just very, you're really worrying a lot about your look minute to minute, yeah. you're kind of stressing it over, and especially now that I'm competing at a higher playing field, it's like, gosh, man, I really can't afford to be, you know, 2% off, I have to be 100%, because now I'm playing at a field of, of with, playing with a field of competitors that are like, genetically either a bit ahead of me or they're on par with me like there's like I'm like I'm kind of like just at the very entry level of like genetics I'd say in terms of the WMBF pro level like I got there but it was a long road to get there whereas there's people who are like let's take an extreme example like Kendall um uh you know WMBF champion he was freaking winning worlds WMBF when he's like 21 you know I won my pro card at 30 you know so it's like you know can I like I can't really be off and that stress kind of makes it tough to enjoy the competition experience. I love meeting the people. I love going, I love being involved with the community, but like that stress of trying to be perfect is like, that's, that's kind of, um, that's the hard part I would say, but yeah, but that's, you know, the, the reinforcement of seeing the physique, you know, improve year to year to year is what keeps me going. And I still do have a lot of fire for that, but it's always in the back of my head. Like, When's it going to stop? When's it going to end? Right. So. <laughs> and that's, that's interesting though, because what I was just thinking in my head, I'm like, I'm like, well, maybe, you know, if you just didn't compete, cause I was almost thinking, is it almost like you compete just cause it's like, why not if I'm getting this lean? But then I'm like, at the same time, you would never get that lean unless you were competing. So it's this like double-edged sword. And then like, that's the way I just think, and it's probably can be what Brian is thinking as well. And not to speak for him, but why I would never get that lean and that's why I don't compete. <laughs> so it's almost like, right. like, and even like for a photo shooter, just walking around is actually, um, I, I've been, I've been on the same uh, aerobic journey and I actually just did my first marathon. And so it's almost been me finding out that it's the same weird battle of like, oh, now I'm just having to eat a ton of food, just like the same way I didn't like when I was like forced myself to bulk a ton, you know, cause I'm just burning so many sure. calories. So um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that Connor? Like, would you, you know, I, I don't think, would you ever get that lean and not compete? Is it, you know what I mean? Obviously, that's no way. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. Zero chance, man. Yeah. Zero chance. So, it, it's not. It's the only way I can do it is if I know I'm going like in in fierce competition against other people. Because like the last seven to nine pounds is really tough, man. It's it's just. I, and I t I talk to people a lot of it all the time. Like there was actually one guy. Um, as I was getting ready to compete, I think I was three weeks out, and this there was this kind of this dude newer to lifting, and I mean, it, honestly, it wasn't the best chance to corner me and question me up with this stuff because you know I'm like three weeks out or whatever. But he was like, he was like, bro, I see you in the gym, like 
you know, like, like, how, how do I cut? Like, like, what do I do? Like, what do I do to get that? And I'm, I was, I was not in the best headspace to answer him right there. I was like, man, like I've been lifting for 15 years and like this, this like physique, it's not sustainable. It's not actually what you want. Like you don't know it yet. You don't understand it, but this actually is not, it should not be your goal right now. Right. You're not wrong. You're not wrong in a yeah. way, but, but no, I yeah. do. It's so hard. I, I feel, I feel that the, the, the way to be able to, uh, that's why I, I feel like 3DMJ was the first time somebody ever explained things in a way that made sense in my head about getting lean and people because it was always the hardcore like you know prep coaches that you hear the nightmares about and then they finally were like explain things in a way i'm like oh maybe like you can almost do this in a way like you were just describing connor where you can explain to a younger kid like you know uh doing it in a realistic way and keeping your health in mind but but brian what are your thoughts on that and and you've competed we we found out you competed once but what makes you not want to compete or why haven't you competed because you said it was 2014 i think right 15 uh, yeah 15, yeah. yeah so so what are your thoughts on on that and and competing and just that side of things yeah so when i competed in 2015 i was in the middle of crossfit um i was beginning my venture out i was kind of losing the passion for it a little bit and so at my crossfit gym i started a, a bodybuilding program and we of course didn't have any machines or anything so it was you know across uh, a crossfit style gym version of of bodybuilding but uh i figured i should compete so that i could be the poster boy for this new program that i created and uh i did men's physique cuz i i knew uh, that i didn't have to get as lean but i really had no idea at the time and it's so naive to think to, to say this but i really didn't know there was a difference between tested and untested organizations at all i've just assumed it was just bodybuilding um and so I went to the local gym in San Diego. It was called The Gym. And, and uh, there was a guy there who was a IFBB pro bodybuilder, and he was the the coach, and he's the guy you hire. And so I went and hired him, and um, I had an awful experience. Like, I, uh, I, I got too lean with too little food and too much exercise, and... Um, it ruined me. I mean, literally ruined me for six months. I, I remember the day after the show, I, we, we just got a new space. We, we had, we were opening a second location and we needed to do a bunch of work like repairs and painting and, you know, carrying things and, and all that stuff. And I got to the bottom of these stairs. There was 14 of them, I think, to get up from the first level to the second. And I got to the bottom of the stairs and I just stopped and I looked up them and I was like, I can't do it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't do it. Um, and so that was like a really tough experience for me because it was so awful and it took so long for me to recover and get back to like who I am and how I wanted to feel that it's been hard for me to, to want to consider doing that again. Uh, even though I know that it's completely different now and that my education is different and and that I would do it differently if I were to do it. Um, every year that I do these photo shoots in late spring, summer or whatever, I pretty much get down to the low 180s. Um, I'm 196 right now. And so I'll get down to 182, something like that, 181. And then I'll eat up for three or four days before the photo shoot to try to get glycogen back in my body. Um, 
but going from 185 to 181 or 182 it's it's reminiscent of the way that i felt in the 2015 experience and it's really hard like it's it's so it's so wild how easy it is to get to 185 like it takes no effort at all i just literally watch what i eat and it's fine and then from 185 to 181 is like this monumental commitment and so I went and I saw Birdo and Brian last year and I trained with them and I was like, Hey, can you guys just give me a physique assessment at, you know, 182 or whatever I was at and just, you know, tell me what you think, like how far further I'd have to go, et cetera. And, uh, I think Birdo even lied to me because he knew that if he told me anything lower, I would have been even more turned off by it. But he was like, yeah, you'll probably have to hit 170, maybe see the high 160s. And I'm guessing that he really meant you'll probably have to see the mid 160s or the low 160s, but he just didn't want to tell me that. Um, and so, yeah, at that point, I was just kind of like, you know, if it was that hard to go from 185 to 181, I don't even want to think about how hard it's going to be to lose the next 10 pounds after that. And I have a wife and I have two kids and I, I own two businesses and um, the timing just isn't right. Like I, I, I had a, this vision in my mind that maybe I would do it last year and I ended up just changing my mind. Like, it's just, I'm just not in a place to do it. Yeah. What, what you said about the, the being at the bottom of the stairs, it reminded me of a client and I think it was probably, uh, right around the time that I was like, you know, really at the point where people are always asking me like, why, when are you going to compete or why aren't you competing? And there was this girl that reached out to me and she was in the middle of what I was describing before, basically a prep coach that just put her through kind of the same thing. You sounded like you went through just a nightmare. Right. And that's kind of what I was talking about with 3DMJ because it was finally someone who like quantified what you're going to be going through, but still kept your health in mind, but didn't shy away from like telling you the realistic nature of things. And then was like, do you still want to do this kind of thing? Do you know what I mean? And I think, that is so important what you're describing because it's just another place that, yeah, even if you're keeping your health in mind and even if you're, you know, doing it in a smart way and you, you know, uh, have your, you know, pre-diet or pre-prep phase and you're really, you know, being really diligent about maintenance, calories, throwing things back in and being smart, you're still like counter set. When you get to that place, like whatever number it is for you, you know, it's that territory, you, you know there's there's no uh and i've never even experienced i just see so many people that i know firsthand it's like oof and like you said it's like almost uh he keeps the gun shy a little bit <laughs> yeah connor what's your uh stage weight when you competed most recently the bo bottom i got the lowest weigh in i saw was about 169.8 um and i kind of just hovered around that for a while and i thought i was going to get lower than that but i never saw a lower weight in, and then i kind of did more of the Dr. Joe Klemzetsky kind of metabolic building into the show. So I ended my calories at like 1600 with like just, you know, activity all day, like, you know, steps. I did, I did a few actually sessions on the, on the assault bike uh, because I'm a met, <laughs> I'm, I'm an idiot, but um, um, like I, I did that a few times a week and then I, I built it up. So I ended up getting my calories up to 2,700 and I, then I was, my morning weight is like 174. So like, mm. like you said, get glycogen back in your system. That was like as much as I could get away with. So 
I kind of just barely touched that like 169, 170 uh, to the bottom. And then I'm, I'm not sure how you're, you, how tall you are. I'm 5'11 and a half. And I'm, we're, we wait, we weigh the same today. I'm, I'm 196 today as well. So. Nice. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm almost 5'10. So uh, yeah. I thought, I thought I was 5'10. And then at the DEXA, they told me, no, you're 5'9 and three quarters. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> They're just killing yeah. me today from that that whole the, the, you know. know. You're like, you didn't give me any positive news leaving this place today, I guess, right? I so true. Yeah. yeah. But but no, speaking of uh, Connor, that's a good segue. You spoke about the assault bike. Talking about cardio, I know uh, Brian, you're just you're just alluding to that a little bit of what we were discussing beforehand. Um, maybe we can kind of get into it this way. For people who are listening to this who don't do any cardio and this only focus on hypertrophy, Brian, what would be your uh, your case for them to benefit from a little bit of and and before we go into it cardio that's not for fat loss because Connor I yeah. think was talking about that as well but yeah. but for more health why, why would yeah. someone benefit even from you know if they're like I only care about muscle um, yeah. you know why why would they benefit no for sure I love this topic um I have 12 more minutes by the way for what oh, it's worth oh no you're good that's um, perfect okay. let's finish with this this would be good cool um so the main form of cardio that I would advise people to do if they're looking to improve their health, their longevity, and possibly their hypertrophy training would be to stick in what would be called zone two. Um, and zone two is essentially a type of cardio that, uh, man, the, there's heart rate numbers you can associate with it. But the longer that I've been coaching people on this now, the last few months, the more I feel like these heart rate numbers are just so variable that I, I kind of find myself leaning more on RPE. Yeah. And so uh, zone two would be something that you could do for two to three hours without, without stopping, but you just don't, you do it for like 45 to 60 minutes. Um, another kind of metric you can use would be a barely stressed conversation. And I used to say semi-stressed conversation until I realized that there's nuts out there that will be in zone four and they'll be still having a conversation and be like, yeah, it's, it's semi-stressed conversation. And, and I'm like, no, 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 that's, that's a stressed conversation. Um, so, so a semi-stressed or a barely stressed conversation would mean that I could be on this podcast right now and I could be talking to you guys and string together 10 to 15 word sentences without having to gasp for air or feel like I'm out of breath. But after each 10 to 15 words, I might need to like take a second and like take a breath and then compose myself for another sentence type thing. Um, and the benefits of this uh, really come down to mitochondria, my, the, the mitochondria. And so there's three things with mitochondria. Um, this type of cardio increases the number of mitochondria the function and the flexibility of them. And so there's this kind of catchphrase that we always hear, which is metabolic flexibility. And that essentially, right, just means that your body can easily switch between using glucose or using fat for fuel. Um, people that have poor mitochondrial function, they pretty much use glucose for fuel for everything. No matter what they're doing, it's pretty much glucose-based. And that's got uh, long-term effects on, on your metabolism that are, that are not good for our health or, or anything like that. Um, so when we do this kind of zone two cardio in a matter of three to six times a week, really depending on how serious you want to get about it, um, through increasing the function, the flexibility and the total number of mitochondria, 
we actually increase our body's ability to recover. And that recovery can occur uh, set to set so that maybe you don't have to rest quite as long between sets of Bulgarians. It can occur session to session. So maybe you don't have to wait five days between training your back again or four days or whatever it is. Maybe you can do that in three days. Um, it also improves sleep. It improves cognitive function. It improves energy throughout the day. Um, and I've noticed it even improve like just mindset and, uh, you can say temper maybe like I have two kids, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And before I did cardio, uh, there would be times where I would often lose my temper on them. And, uh, wildly enough, since doing this cardio, I find my temper much more controlled. I don't even feel the urge to yell at them nearly as often. So, um, I think just the, the benefits are so profound, um, and if you do it at the right intensity where you're not letting yourself get into zone three, zone four, zone five, but you're really staying in zone two, um, I don't even think that it has the, the catabolic, uh, effect that, that cardio tends to have on muscle. And, uh, if it just really is, is a positive all around. Yeah, I, I think, Brian, I actually messaged you about this a while ago. And during the pandemic, and actually even before that, um, I bought a mountain bike. And that was when I really got into my first zone two st style of training. And even, I guess, mountain biking, there's definitely times where you're pushing yourself yeah. a little bit, which I didn't really realize, um, you know, until I learned more about things, you know. But even then, it was like the first time I ever was doing cardio and enjoyed it, you know, without really thinking. And at that same time, um, I had limited access during the pandemic. And I, I, this is where I was kind of talking to you. I think we were relating it to like, your arms um, and, and your arm experiment. But I was only doing like one or two like full body workouts per week, along with this this amount of cardio where I was mountain biking at least a couple times a week, maybe running like, you know, one to three miles, 5K at most at that point, a couple times a week too. And I literally myself was like, yeah, I'm going to lose muscle for sure. And this was when I finally realized, I think, you know, how much, how little, you know, the minimum, you know, the minimum effective dose to maintain the muscle that yeah. I have. And I think this maybe goes back to even our, our nihilist sort of uh, natural mindset, but at the same time, a positive way uh, kind of helps the nihilist a little bit. You can maintain that muscle that you've built, even though maybe you can't keep, you know, forever building and building a lot easier than we might think. Um, and, uh, and yeah, no, but the cardio side of things, it's definitely been interesting. And I think Connor, you've experienced that same sort of thing too, with a little bit of cardio you've been doing in, in the off season and with your recovery between sets, as, as Ryan was saying, right? Absolutely. And it's something I want to get more serious about. Um, I, I, I didn't want to fess up, but I was a little bit slack on it the last few weeks, but, but it, I do, <laughs> I, I kind of got a little bit of that buy-in because I did the odd little bit of cardio during prep and I, I had been doing none for almost my whole prep. And I really did notice adding a little bit in, I was like, huh, you know, I'm super depleted. These sets of RDLs, they're just not taxing me like they were before. And I was like, damn, well, that's a benefit right there. And I actually, I don't mind doing it. Like maybe I'm just the odd bodybuilder here and I'm not doing tons, but when I do it, I don't mind it. And I feel good. Like Brian says, like, I just, I don't see why it needs to be so demonized, I guess, you know, like it, yeah. it kind of get demonized, I think a little bit well, for the I bodybuilding world for a while. I think, and we can kind of finish on this because I know Brian has to head out, but what I think, and it speaks to what you were mentioning, I finally was realizing that I was running too fast. And I think, and for me, I, I still enjoyed it even, you know, I have a wrestling background and, you know, I'm kind of like, I enjoy that side of things, you know, uh, 
kind of a psychotic a little bit in that in that way Wrestlers more than all most are people. psychotic yeah yeah right so, so it's a little <laughs> different for me but i think the problem a lot of times is people are doing they're going too hard and then they don't ever get into that point of enjoying it where, where you do find more enjoyment when you're at that true like you're saying semi-stress conversational pace um you know and people talk about like the runner's high you know or like that sort of thing it's like yeah, you're not going to feel that if you're just, you know, at like an interval level uh, intensity, just cranking yourself. Um, it's not going to be that same sort of same sort of feeling as, you know, many people are describing. But um, I think yeah. uh, one of the best things that came out of that DEXA I did today and one of the other kind of things I was really looking forward to in, in getting the results was to see whether all of this cardio that I've been doing would have any deleterious effects on the amount of muscle that my body holds. And my hypothesis was, of course, that if my body weight is the same or similar to where it was, like, where's the muscle going to go? It's it's not like just because you're doing cardio, your body's like, oh, I need to turn this muscle into mm. fat now. Like, sure, maybe there's some conversion of, of type two to type one fiber, just because that is the adaptation that happens with cardio. Like you, you kind of have to have more type one fibers to improve at cardio. That's something I obviously don't know from the DEXA, but shit, it showed I gained 0.8 pounds of lean mass in six months. And that at least is proof that I didn't lose any muscle. So uh, I feel very, very solid about that. Yeah, it's interesting because I think like you're saying, mainly would be your, you know, for me, it was my legs that I was mainly worried about the most. But yeah, if you're kind of keeping all the bases reinforced with like the mode of like, all right, well, lifting's making that muscle stay around. I'm not, you know, depriving myself on calories. So it's like, you know, like you said, where is it going? And yeah. um, I think that's important. But actually, speaking of fiber type, I think Alec Blennis just said today, and I think this is an interesting uh, concept. He's like, I want to see someone run a sub three marathon and have a 30 inch vertical. And that is like, like you're describing kind of those polar opposites in mm -hmm. terms of fiber type. So that would be a, that'd be an interesting thing. So in CrossFit, the challenge was always uh, to run a sub six minute mile and squat 500 pound single. Yeah, that's, that's wild. I think there's like some of those like high rocks guys. And I think Alec right now is trying to do it uh, a sub five and squat five. Oh, wow. That. That's even more yeah. impressive. Yeah, he's, yeah. And he's, that's, that's wild. Yeah. That, that yeah. is insane. But um, yeah, definitely, definitely wild. But, um, but no, but I was gonna say maybe, uh, is there anything else and Connor or either you or Brian want to kind of sum things up here or any final notes at all? I just wanted to say thanks for Brian for coming on the podcast. Uh, Likewise. you know, started to follow him around. I think it was sometime in the pandemic or just maybe a little bit after and uh, cool content and, um, I want to keep following him and see what he gets up to next. So yeah, thanks, Brian. Yeah, man, I am. Uh, I'm honored to be here. It's great to connect with you guys, and uh, I look forward to following both your journeys too. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. No, thank you. Thank you again, Brian. We we appreciate it, and um, definitely check out Brian's info. We'll leave that all down below, and make sure you guys can check everything out um, from him. And yeah, same with us as far as ATP, and we will. Uh, we'll catch you guys in the next one. But yeah, thank you guys for watching.